Good morning. I, I am really excited to be here. It's my first time uh, getting to hang out with you on a Sunday morning, which is kind of nice. Did you say no? Oh, they said, I thought Brian said no. It is Sunday morning, Brian. Still getting used to it. Um, I love we said just sang this song. Just this week, we had a conversation with uh, my wife and I did uh, with a friend about what songs they're going to play at their wedding. And, uh, and they said we might sing In Christ Alone. And we sang In Christ Alone at our wedding. Our wedding was just 14 people. We, we wanted to elope, but that would like kill our parents. So we <laughs> invited them to come with us. <laughs> which I would highly recommend if you're planning a wedding. Uh, we were just rented a big cabin in Colorado. I'd never been to Colorado, so I used it as an excuse to go to Colorado. And we rented a cabin in Rocky Mountain National Park. Anyway, we're standing around in the trees, and we thought, this song, we love this song. And we sang it, but none of our family knew the song. So my wife and I sang this to our family at our wedding. <laughs> and then, uh, this, is, this is the fun part. Our friend said, did you sing anything else? And we said, yeah. And they went, cool, what else? That's a great song. Yeah, we think we're going to do it. And I said, oh, this is another one. And because we kind of don't share that, we also sang the song God of Wonders. Does anyone know the song God of Wonders? It was like on the radio every other song for a while. And then we've never heard of it again <laughs> since then. And we like last minute, we're like, we got to sing this Chris Tomlin song, God of Wonders, because it's just going to be classic. And someday we're going to be singing this with our kids in church. And it's going to be like, we sang this at our wedding. And I don't think I've heard that song since our wedding. It's a great song, but that was, that was a bonus story. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors at Hope, uh, and uh, it really is a joy to be here with you today. Um, we have, uh, my family is my wife, uh, who you just heard a little bit about, and our two daughters, Zoe and Zariah, they are 11. We have a middle school in our house now, and eight, who's in third grade. And we've spent so far uh, the, the beginning of the school year at soccer games. This is not a picture of our actual soccer game. I don't know where this is, but this is way more parents than our, our soccer games. Um, but we spend, uh, we spend our Saturdays um, hanging out uh, at soccer games, which has really been a joy to become like a soccer parent. I grew up playing soccer and uh, loved it and, uh, and was really annoyed by parents. And now I get to be one of those parents. And I kind of get, get what's going on. We sit on the sidelines with parents, and every single game, um, most of the game, we hear parents just complaining about how poor the soccer is. I mean, like, I can't believe that kid took that shot. Why didn't he cross it over the center and a kid could have one-touched it into the goal? Um, you're like, well, probably because they're like eight years old or seven years old and they don't, they've never played soccer before. There's this, these wild expectations and really we spend a lot of our time, if it's not about the kids and how I can't believe that kid took that shot, why didn't he pass the ball? And parents yelling things they don't, there's a lot of the, the phrase boot it, a lot of boot it, kick it hard, uh, which actually isn't real good coaching in soccer. You should pass or um, parents encouraging, like giving positive reinforcement to things that aren't you shouldn't be giving positive reinforcement. You have like the aggressive kid who shoves kids down and his dad's like, yeah. Um, and a lot of this, right? A lot of parents complaining about that. And then also uh, we're, we're in super rec soccer, right? In fact, our daughter's team is in a league where there are two teams. So for <laughs> six weeks, we've played the same team every week. <laughs> and the other team is really good. And our team is not good. So we are 0 oh, and 8, and they are 8 and 0, or whatever the end of the year scores went. Yeah, and every week we show up, and our daughter goes, Oh, it's those same kids, and they're so good. And 
every week they kill us. <laughs> we stop keeping score at halftime because uh, it's just kind of sad. And then, so because of that, we get a lot of complaining about this league and how this league doesn't know and who's running the league. And you think the commissioner is aware of the, there's no way there's a commissioner of a league with two, there's two third grade teams in the league, right? It's like some, a parent who's like, I'll reserve a field somewhere and we can play each other. And then of course, right, we live in a time where uh, you're allowed to apparently just destroy uh, referees, officials, right? So there's a high school student, he's a sophomore at Immaculate Conception, the school in our town that we play. Really nice kid, does a great job. He actually stops and teaches kids like, hey, hey, that's why that happened. Or when you kick it out, that's not good. You should, <laughs> right? He's really sweet and people just ridicule him. Oh, what is this guy doing? Come on, ref, get some glasses. Like he's, he's a... Uh, so I spend, being a parent now uh, of kids who are in sports, it is, it's ruthless when you're sitting on the sidelines. Uh, and there, there's just this wild amount of complaining. It's rare, actually. We cheer when, like, maybe they score or if a kid kicks it really far, which isn't necessarily even a, always a good thing. But there's this amount of complaining that happens, I think because we're just aware of partially how, how not perfect Youth soccer is, right? Even if we were at a professional game watching the best soccer players in the world, we would still all be sitting in the stands complaining about why didn't they do this? They should have done that. Why isn't it perfect? Why isn't every shot a, a, a goal? Um, and I think for me, this has really shown, I think just like we kind of live in an in a environment, right? In a culture that this is a very normal act. In fact, I was just reading um, a study that says that there's been uh, such an increase uh, in, in, in issues of depression and discontentment in our culture, that somebody did a study. I don't know how you do this, so don't. I don't know how accurate this is, but they say people complain. the The amount of complaining per day, you're complaining per day, has risen steadily over the last 15 years. When someone's doing a 15 year study on complaining, um, how dare they? What a dumb thing to do, right? <laughs> They're so stupid. This money. Let me get on a rant about that. Um, they say 15 to 30 times, which is a pretty broad thing, but even if it's 15 times a day, they say someone stops their day to complain about their dissatisfaction with the things around them. There's this sense of we are, uh, I think, aware. I think it's okay often to even be discontent in the sense of like this thing isn't right. I think we, are, we tend to see the brokenness around us ultimately, right? And we love to identify it and then together continue to identify it, and then, you, and then usually find someone to blame for that discontentment. And, and even I think I, it's not always that I'm blaming someone, it's just that I see the brokenness in the world around me, whether it's my eight-year-old who can't dribble, right, or, or, or really serious things, right? Th things around us that aren't right, injustice around us, people who are, are really selfish and can't talk about anything but themselves, who are willing to hurt other people to get their way, that a coworker at work who just is really hard to work with because, because they're broken, right? They're a sinner. The world, something's not right. And so we find ourselves, I think, in a, in a place where we see that and identify that and we are upset about that, I think, all people, and we don't know what to do with that. And so today we get an opportunity um, as we continue in Nehemiah, to see that this happens. These people actually stop to grieve and weep. And Nehemiah and Ezra stop them and give them a, a way to do that, to, to kind of be in the brokenness, but also uh, 
respond differently than just continuing to identify things are broken, things are broken, things are broken, but things are broken and there's something big and better. That's my hope today. It's, I've been encouraged by this. Um, and I hope as a church, especially Lower Town, as um, we grieve together, um, terrible brokenness and death, we can find some joy today um, in this. I want to catch you up a little bit, though, with Nehemiah. We'll, we'll move past soccer dad. And uh, just a little timeline in case you're not sure where we are, we're at. Uh, this is just an Old Testament very brief uh, uh, a little journey for us. So if you see the lines there, those are kind of like things are getting better and things are getting worse. We just see a time where, uh, of Abraham and God's people and things were getting better and they were being obedient and they're being faithful and they're uh, serving God. And, and David comes and is a king, obviously still a sinner. There's lots of stuff going on with him, but there's this time where God's kingdom and his people were together and they're faithful and they're being led to worship God. And then God's people decide to, to turn away from God and find other things and, and see, the, see the sin around them and think there's other solutions than worshiping this God for this, this rubble around me. Um, and they actually get, get scattered and split up, exiled. Um, and, and, they, and it goes downhill. And this is where we are in Ezra and Nehemiah, kind of at this point where they've been exiled. They're living in different places and other other under people's kingdoms. Um, and then we see... Nehemiah, a man who isn't living in Jerusalem, but hears that Jerusalem, like their home, the walls have crumbled, it's unprotected, it's unsafe, and he uh, feels a call from God to go back. So a lot of us have been journeying through Nehemiah, and if you haven't, Nehemiah does go back, and he, um, through lots of works of God, through lots of prayer, the walls become rebuilt through people against him, in fact, in physical harm against them. They're building walls as they're protecting themselves from people. The walls actually do get built, not really real spectacular walls, but walls do get built. And this is where we're at today as we're in Nehemiah. We're gonna move into Nehemiah seven and eight. Um, Today, we find ourselves with some walls built uh, and God's people start coming back. In, in chapter seven, we're not gonna get in chapter seven, but chapter seven is a list of a lot of names of the people who decide they're gonna come back, actually. Gather back together, bring the family together in Jerusalem. And so then we're gonna start uh, in chapter eight. And my hope today is that we can, um, uh, th- this is actually, is, in reading this, this has become something I've been jotting down. I just wanna share uh, with you. My hope is that this is something we understand and believe um, as we keep rolling here. As we look through Nehemiah 8 today, I hope we end with understanding that we can gather in rubble as the people there because our God has built us a palace. And for us today, we know that that's in Jesus. So let's get after this. If you want to open Bibles or apps, or I'll put it up on the screen. Um, We are in Nehemiah 8. Um, Right after the wall has been built, people have gathered back together and they uh, have now made a decision of what to do as they're Um, all together. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So the people are together and they've actually asked Ezra, uh, named after the book of Ezra, which is kind of connected here, 
to Nehemiah. They ask him to come out. He's the one who has brought the word back to God's people, has brought God's commandments and the story of God's people back to their people, making it central to them. Um, they said, can we get together and will you read the word of God to us? We actually read the law of Moses, which we read in our Bibles, right? In the beginning of our Old Testament, in our, our Genesis and Deuteronomy is a story of what God has done, um, the law that God has set up for his people. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which is made up of men and women and all who are able to understand. So he did do it. So they asked him, yeah. I'm not sure why you'd say no to that. Yeah, um, let's, let's get you together. He got together and this is, this is important. It says, it was made up of men and women and all who are able to understand, meaning even kids. So this is like everyone, all the families, which is significant that they're getting together. They're not, they're not meeting in a temple. They're just meeting together because they want to hear Ezra read the word of God to them. They want to hear God's words to them and hear the stories of what God has done. Be reminded of that. And it's everybody. It's not certain people, certain leaders, important people. It's, it's all people together under the word. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened tentatively to the book of the law. Did you see how long they read it? They read it from daybreak to noon. These people stood and listened to him read the word. Like, what? how hungry are you for the word? That they come back to Jerusalem, the walls have been built, and they're gathering together in this square, which, which at that point still would have, they actually weren't living in the area because it still was rubbly inside. Um, there still was a lot of brokenness in there. They're standing in a, in a big area. Ezra's reading the word of God to them in all this rubble. Like, what a kind of amazing moment. And they're just listening for a long time. He's not like, here's a cool passage. Now go back to your homes. He's reading and reading, reading. They're hearing a lot again of what God has done and what God has for them. He stood, well, how does this work? I like to give this detail. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. So not only did they say, let's just get together, they like had to plan this. They built a big deck. I built a de it takes a little while to build a deck. And I don't think they had like cordless drills, right? So they built this deck just so that Ezra could stand above them and read the word. This is how hungry, excited they were to see the word. Beside him, here we go, some, some great lists of names. Beside him, on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his left were that whole other list of people. <laughs> uh, those, are, those are important people. Their names are in, in Scripture, right? It's interesting, a lot of those people we don't hear about again or don't know necessarily their importance, which is significant because these weren't like um, putting on display some kind of leaders or important people. This was again saying, these are our people together, let's gather and, and hear the word. This wasn't about propping certain people up. This could have been a time that they had built the walls and they said, let's celebrate how awesome we were for building the walls. Instead, they wanna hold up the word of God and. God, right? And say, how awesome is our God for building these walls? 
Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them because they built that sweet platform. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped God with their faces to the ground. So God's people are standing together. He's standing on this platform, reading the word of God. In fact, it says they stand up. They stood for a really long time, hearing the word of God spoken to them. There's something really important about God's people coming together and that the word of God is spoken and that they are responding to it. We, it's what we're doing right now, right? You're, I'm not gonna make you stand up, but we, we came together because there's something important about the word of God, hearing the word of God in your life and what that does. Um, it's different than just if we gathered and read another book. There's something about God's word that actually is really important. And what they do, their response to that is to worship God together. All right, let's keep rolling here. We got a whole chapter to get through. Here we go. So he reads the word. They're standing together. They're worshiping. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Banu, a whole bunch of other Levites who are the priests, the tribe of priests, instructed the people in the law while they were standing there. This word instruct could mean uh, read and explain. So this is cool. They're having a gigantic Bible study together. I don't know if they're breaking into small groups. Maybe they're having some icebreaker questions around the rubble together. <laughs> this is cool. They, they're not only opening the word, just reading the word, but they're actually helping one another explain what the word means. So it's not just about, let's read the word and worship God. Let's read the word and then together, what, it, what does it look like to instruct one another? Other interesting thing is these are people that were in exile, so they came back. So uh, the language that they're reading it in, in Hebrew, some of them may not know very well. It might actually not be very native to them because of their time away and not together. So this actually could be not just instructing and helping them understand what the word says. It actually could be them translating it for them. How cool is that? God's people who are scattered come together and there's people helping so that one language can be used to help them all. See, again, remember the story of, of Babel when the tower, they try to build the tower and everyone scatters and has to speak different languages. It's this like cool reverse of that. They are coming together under the word and now they're all gonna hear it and be instructed uh, together. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So it's interesting, we, we get a moment where, where there seem to be uh, gathered around the word, they're hearing about the word and as people instruct them and teach them and they understand what's happening as he's reading these stories and this narrative to them, they begin to weep. I think I would weep too if I stood there and was hearing the stories of my people and my ancestors um, because most of those stories don't uh, remind me of the rubble around me, right? And I'm, I think they would feel they're at the center of a lot of those really poor decisions to turn 
from God. They'd hear the story of the garden where God creates this garden and then his people decide they'd like to be God themselves, which we find ends in death. They hear the story about so much sin in the world and disobedience that God floods the world, leaving just a family. They hear the story of the Exodus where people are in, their people are enslaved and God rescues them. And pretty quickly, their people turn to other gods and then are in the wilderness, exiled again. Can you imagine this? They're like hearing all these stories and going, I know this too well. We've seen this for generations and we are still doing the same thing. They hear about David's defeat of Goliath at God's hand. And then as the story continues, we see David, this great king, murder someone, consumed by his lust. They see this cycle of sin and death over and over and over. And as God's people who just returned from being away, you would feel that weight of this has just continued on and on. And I, I too have felt that I would assume we all feel that cycle you can't break and the feeling that you can't get over this thing and we can't defeat this thing and that in the end, death has power over all things. Thankfully, it doesn't end there. Um, Nehemiah says to them as they weep, as they grieve, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. He says, go and have a feast. And make sure those people who don't have stuff get to feast with you. Make sure everyone is about to feast. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. He says, you should go and feast and celebrate. He says, you should turn that grieving into great joy. In fact, he uses this phrase that, um, that we often hear. This is, a, this is like one of those phrases that gets etched on like a piece of wood and you hang on your wall, but you don't know where, <laughs> what the context is. My mom would love to have this somewhere on her wall. Um, if you see in verse 10 there, uh, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. No one ever has the like, do not grieve or you don't know that they're talking about these people <laughs> that just built this wall. Um, the Lord, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I've been told this before when I was grieving. I, I've been sitting with people who are grieving, hurting, and someone says, yeah, Drew, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. So be strong and stop grieving. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. And then I just go, oh, I'll stop grieving. You just, right? It's that easy. You just stop, just stop grieving. And I'll just, oh, you're right. And I'm just happy and I go home. Yeah, I'm not sad anymore about this terrible thing that's happened. It that, that doesn't happen, right? You can't just say that. I think because we need to understand what this is saying and we'll actually learn what, they're gonna actually have them play out what this looks like. He's saying the joy of the Lord. So he's saying joy is actually not from us. It's not something that I just say, be strong, muster up some joy while you're grieving. He's saying joy comes from God because God is our, and in this, in a lot of times in scripture, this, uh, in this passage, it's used as strength. This word actually closer and is used a lot more as the word fortress or kingdom or uh, uh, like, a, like a mighty 
palace-fortified city, which I like better. Take the joy from God because God is your fortress. If you're standing in a bunch of rubble, chunks of buildings and things that have been destroyed around a wall that, it, that just was built, maybe not the greatest wall, but it's built, and you're looking out and you're grieving because you realize that you're a sinner and that all of this sin and death has destroyed lives for generations and generations, and you feel the weight of that, and you fall on your knees, and you weep, and someone says, you can't forget that the joy comes from our God, who is our fortress. Can you imagine the physical that, you, that you're standing in all of a sudden becomes a very real thing when you can imagine a fortress, that you're in a palace that, of God. All of a sudden, it says they all of a sudden realize what the, the word of God was about. That it wasn't about reading the word and just being convicted of, of, of the part of the story that's on them. How often does this happen, right? I read scripture and I go, oh, how is this about me? And I'm trying to look for my name. Where does it talk about Drew in this? Nowhere, <laughs> right? We look quickly to who we are in it, which, which should convict us and say, but then we should be able to turn and go, but what does this say about God? Oh, how good God is that he has rescued us, and when we have torn down kingdoms around us, God rebuilds them. It is our fortress. Their joy can come from the Lord as they begin to understand what the word of God is telling them. I would be doing a huge disservice to you, and Brian would, if we stood up here and said, you're sinners and you're terrible. Isn't stuff terrible around us? Now go and be happy even though stuff's terrible. What a, what a terrible moment if we didn't say, but God is doing great things and has done great things and will do great things. And that's where this passage goes. What, what happens next is they go and feast. And then after that, they decide on the second day of the month, heads of those families gather. Along with the priests and the Levites, they gather around Ezra, the scribe, to give attention to the words of the law, and they find written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country and bring back branches of olive and wild olive trees from the myrtles, uh, from myrtles, palms, I like that word myrtles, from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths as it is written. That sounds weird. We're supposed to make booths now? Um, or it could be t tabernacles or tents. Why is this happening? Because this was commanded uh, in Leviticus, we see this. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. So they're saying this time that they're meeting is the time of year they should be celebrating the festival of booths. What is the festival of booths? It is a statue forever through your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israel should dwell in booths. We get to dwell in booths, that your generation may know that you made the people of Israel dwell in booths. So this is what they're doing. They're doing this to reenact when the people of Israel lived in booths, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. They celebrate the festival of booths because it reminds them of when they had to live in tents, when God rescued them from Egypt, when Exodus happened. So it's a celebration of Exodus where God frees them from slavery. It makes them his people. So he says, we gathered to hear the word. We grieved over the stories, the history of our sin. 
as we stand in rubble, we are devastated by this. And Nehemiah lifts their heads up and says, but we cannot forget what God has done. Let's celebrate the festival that reminds us that even when we are enslaved, God came and rescued us. These are people um, who have just returned from being away from God. As if another exodus over and over in their lives, they're freed and then they turn away from God and they come back to God as if they're recreating this festival of booths that God asked them to do from their wilderness and exile back into God's, back together in God's city, celebrating their return from wilderness and now again having it happen again. So what do they do? They, they do it. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and one by uh, the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. So everyone who came back built booths. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the feast of seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Something interesting that happens here. It says they celebrated it like they had never celebrated it since Joshua, which was really when it began which historically is not correct. Historically, they did actually get together. They got together and they did all the rules and they said, yeah, we're glad that God freed us from slavery and Exodus was awesome. I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're having a party every year still, built, kind of building booze. They didn't always do it, but they tried to do it. It says though, this time, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israels did not celebrate it like this. Something was different. The actual celebration originally, could you imagine? They're currently in that moment. That your current condition was we have been rescued out of slavery. That actual generation, the real peoples whose feet were enslaved in Egypt had walked out of there and they were celebrating their in the moment, their current condition, and these people now are celebrating their current condition of being back in God's family, in Jerusalem together. There's something about the fact that we can celebrate in our current condition, and it's not just a memory of something that happened before. This, this happens with my kids, because we'll celebrate, we like, you know, they have days off of school, and they're like, what is this for? And you're like, well, this thing happened a long time ago. And it's controversial, actually. We're not sure exactly how it happened. But it's about the founding of America. And just be happy you have the day off school, right? There's like this really not, the connection is, not, is, is vague, right? But these people are celebrating in a way that's like, we are free. And we are back. And God has brought us together. That's different. I think it's different when we celebrate when we have a perspective that our current condition is that we have been rescued from slavery and that, that the exodus has happened and it's, it's, it's still happening in us. That the rubble around us isn't the end game. 
that this rubble around us just reminds us that God is good and can still do things when we can't. I, um, when I was a kid and I played soccer, uh, our soccer coach, every time the first practice of our soccer, he required all the parents to come for a parent meeting, but the parent meeting was actually, he made the parents play the kids in soccer. So he just was like, everyone get on the field. And uh, I remember as I got older and older, we would just destroy our parents. I mean, it was like the greatest thing to score a goal on my dad and see his face. And you could just see on their faces, they were like, oh, this is way harder than we think, right? And we would yell like, boot it at our parents. <laughs> it was so fun. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's just, our coach just thinks it's fun that we can, uh, you know, like destroy our parents, make them sad. Um, it wasn't though, right? Uh, it could have been a waste of a practice. He did it because those teams, often those parents acted very differently on the sidelines the rest of the season. A parent doesn't yell things to a kid when he's like, oh, that's actually really hard. You hear, you hear parents from other teams be like, hey, why didn't you do the cross it and head it in the goal? And they'd be like, it's actually really hard to cross it and head in the goal, right? It's actually really difficult. He's doing a great job. He's doing a great job. They, there's something different when we get a different perspective. We're not just seeing, right, the brokenness. We're seeing the brokenness and we're standing in the rubble. But at the same time, we know that God is doing something, right? We, we really get a bigger, broader picture of the reality. And so I think that's what's happening here. It's God's people are gathered, standing in rubble, spiritually, this greater reality of just rubble that they're in in the history of the rubble but they can do that and withstand that because God has built a palace in Jesus. Our God doesn't just leave us there in Nehemiah, but Jesus actually comes to earth. You remember this moment? He actually, he actually is riding on a donkey into Jerusalem about to die and he pauses and looks over the city and he actually weeps over the city. He sees the rubble. Maybe not buildings rubble, but he sees rubble of lives, right? Spiritual rubble of people who are partaking in corruption and selfishness, and they think they're clinging to God when they're clinging to laws. He sees it and he weeps too. But he also sees a longer, better vision, and Jesus doesn't leave us there he does something about it, which is why we can sit in our rubble and know that there's something greater. And we don't have to sit in grief, but we can hold on to that joy of the Lord and let it be our fortress and our palace. And what he does is he goes and takes care of this so that we never, ever have to deal with that again. He dies so that we don't have to pay those consequences of this rubble, of this sin and he rebuilds our lives. The current condition of our lives is that we may stand today in rubble, but God has built a place for us so we can celebrate. I love how uh, C.S. Lewis says this as we kind of wrap up here. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking down the house, about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. You felt this? God, no, I just need you to clean up the rubble. 
You're doing a lot more. You're doing something bigger than that. I just need you to make people nice uh, around each other. It doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought. Throwing out a new wing here or putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage and he was building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. That's the joy of the Lord. He's building us a palace. And that's what we can look to as we stand in rubble. We can look to the palace that God is building for us. And we, and we see this in scripture as we look to Revelation and we know that, that it's not done, that we do really stand in rubble and grieve because is, it is kind of crummy, right? My eight-year-old would say it's garbage. She'd say it's kind of garbage out there. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of garbage. I can just talk all day about how garbagey it is. Or I can look to the Lord who brings me joy even in that garbage and let other people know that this isn't where we have to stay. I love how this is put um, as, as we finish here. I love how this is put in uh, a Jesus Storybook Bible, which um, some of you may know it's for me. I, I just love it. We read it with our kids. My wife and I read this before we even had kids secretly because we didn't know if that was like kosher to to read your Jesus story Bible. We'd like weep every time. This is so good. Is this okay that we don't read just the Bible? Um, this is cool. They make the Jesus story Bible without pictures so that you feel more like an adult when you read it. <laughs> they even make it like in cool. So I read this like in a book, you know, like at a coffee shop. You're like, oh, cool. I'm like, yeah, it's a children's book. Um, I want to read to you how this ends though um, as we wrap up here and head into time of communion. So, so just listen to this. Um, this is the illustration from the book, though. I love this. This is, the, this is the fortress and the palace we have to look forward to. The walls are built, they're strong, and the city is no longer in rubble. Then Jesus gave John a beautiful dream, except John was wide awake, and what he saw was real. And one day, this would be True. I see a throne, and on that throne is a king, and the king is Jesus. All around the throne, people are bowing down. They are giving him treasures. There are loud cheers and clapping and clapping and bright laughter, like a thousand waterfalls, and everyone bursts out singing a new song. The song is, this is our king, the lamb who died, so we don't have to die. He's our rescuer. All glory and honor forever and ever. And every creature everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they all join in. And then from all around, a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, but he's thrown down and he's defeated. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, the city is coming down from the sky, from heaven, and from the sky. Heaven is coming to earth. God's city is so beautiful. Walls of topaz and jasper and sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where's the sun? Where's the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness, no more light. The king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding, no more crying or being lonely or afraid, no more being sick or dying because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look, 
I am making all things new. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness towards us that you don't leave us in the rubble, that you don't leave us with nothing to look to, but you give us your joy because you are our fortress. You have built us a palace. Our current state, Lord, is that we are in you, safe. Father, I pray you'd help us let others know that great hope. And that if we don't know that hope, Lord, that we could today put our hope in you. I pray each day we'd wake up again and again, putting our hope in you, celebrating the joy of the Lord. Amen.